You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So I'm just supposed to do whatever you say and listen to your instructions and... Yes, you signed on to this. You told me you wanted happily ever after. If I tell you to take all your money out of the bank and light it on fire... Pure Food and Wine was the top raw vegan restaurant in the world. It was ahead of its time, and it was a high-end, fine-dining vegan experience that was a hot spot. Owen Wilson used to just post up in the back and, like, walk through the kitchen. And I'm like, what is this place? Sarma was the brand, the raw vegan queen. It was such a great environment to work in. If none of this had ever happened, we'd probably still be working there. Sarma was telling me about a guy that she had been talking to online. There were tons of conspiracy theories about why she married him. Was there some sort of blackmail involved? It was just all very mysterious. Anthony told Sarma she had to perform a series of tests. He promises her that he is going to make Sarma and her dog immortal. It's a complete madness. Do you know about the meat suit? What is the meat suit? Oh, no. What's the meat suit? I'm going to need a minute. (laughs) Some of the money coming from the restaurant business, it went straight to Anthony's pocket. He tells her, if you don't keep going along, you'll lose everything you ever cared about. Orders if a popular Manhattan vegan restaurant are under arrest, accused of ripping off their workers. I said that I felt like she was stealing from us, and... I was fired. Police say junk food led them to the fugitives. When I heard she got caught ordering pizza in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, I got the popcorn out. Like, let's do this. Who cares about their pizza? What happened to the money? What if Sarma's running a scam on him? If that was the con. Makes her look like the vegan Bernie Madoff. What happened to you? Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And yes, I'm back from my mini break, and a lot happened in the time that I wasn't posting new episodes. The Oscars. I just want to say a little something about the Will Smith slap. I found it utterly unbelievable, and I know that you did too, to see that happen on national and international TV. And the fact that Will Smith just thought it was okay. He's that entitled that he just went and sat back down and then started shouting at Chris Rock, saying, keep my wife's name out your effing mouth. 
He shouted that twice. I just want to break that down quickly and point you to the fact that when he says my wife, the possessive pronoun, and that he doesn't name her, she's just the wife, what he's saying is she belongs to me, entitlement, ownership, and possession. And also, it wasn't an impulsive red mist act. He had to walk across the stage to get to Chris Rock, and he could have changed his mind at any time, but he didn't. And thereafter, he gets up to a standing ovation when he wins Best Actor. I guess people really didn't know what to do. I mean, this hasn't happened before, and the Academy certainly didn't know what to do. But I was yelling, what's happening at the TV? And then he gives his speech and this crying and the words coming out saying that he's protecting girls and women and that love makes you do crazy things. I just had a visceral reaction to that. And I have to say, most domestic abusers, well, they say exactly the same thing. She made me do it. It's so concerning to hear him say this. And look what you made me do or see what you made me do. And of course, it's the subject title of Jess Hill's book, which I've interviewed Jess on Crime Analysts, so check out those interviews. So clearly there's much more going on behind closed doors. And I called it on social media. I said that somehow the mental gymnastics would occur and a woman would be blamed. And lo and behold, a woman was blamed for a man's actions. And then on March 30th, the Home Secretary in the UK announced the new domestic abuse plan, which includes a register for domestic abusers. As if it's just an idea that she came up with, all casual-like, when she and the rest of the government voted down my amendment. In fact, they put so much effort and energy into resisting it, if only that energy had gone into implementing it, then perhaps Sabina Nessa and other women's lives would have been saved. But unfortunately, in that plan, there was no detail, no action plan, no detail about whether it would include stalkers, no invitation to consult and no acknowledgement of all the hard work this has taken across two decades. I mean, talk about rendering all the women who have been murdered and all the women who've been abused, all the survivors who've been campaigning with me, talk about rendering us invisible. More on that to come. Now, across the last couple of weeks, I received so many messages from you lovely lot asking me to analyse Netflix's Bad Vegan, Fame, Fraud and Fugitives. I really thought that this would probably be one episode, but it turned into two. And due to the timing, I decided to drop this before I share my analysis of the horrific murder of Gabby Petito. So, spoiler alert, watch the show if you haven't done so already. I wrote out my analysis and was just about to record when I connected with Joey. That's Joey Rapice. Now, you might recall Joey is in the Netflix show. He was one of the standout people to me. And he helped Sama and also Matthew Kenny, who was her partner. He helped them both set up Pure Food and Wine. Joey was there from the start. Now, it was really important for me to speak with him, as I really wanted an independent lens, and he was happy for me to record the conversation. So staying true to my process, I want you to hear this conversation first of all, but I'll share with you that it really reinforced everything that I believed was going on. In fact, everything Joey says just further confirmed my analysis and profile of what was happening. So take a listen and let me know what you think. Hey, Joey, I'm really happy to have you on Crime Analyst, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation, although looking forward is probably the wrong phraseology, but I'm really happy we connected. So please explain who you are to my listeners. Hi, it's um, nice to reconnect with you again today. I'm Joey. Joey Repiche is my name. I am the beverage director or was the beverage director 
at Pure Food and Wine for 10 years. I had a long 10 years standing at the restaurant and um, I'm currently living here in Oregon making Joey's hot sauce, but that's who I am. Excellent. And I'm, I'm going to ask you about some of the things that you're doing now post the restaurant life, because you've recently been in a docu-series called Bad Vegan, and I personally don't like the name, but I think in terms of what was communicated on there about what happened, well, I think I'm left with lots of questions, lots of other people are left with questions, and we're going to get into that. But what I will say is that you came across incredibly well in the docu-series, and which is why I was so happy to connect with you. And hopefully you can help shed light on some of the things that happened that obviously didn't make it into the docu-series. And, and equally, maybe I can explain a little bit of what I believe has been going on so we can, we can fill in the, the gaps, hopefully. So you mentioned that you started the restaurant with Sama and that you were there from the very beginning and that it was very much like a, another family. It had a very nice feel to it in terms of all of you working together and all on this, the same mission to make it as successful as possible. And can you just explain a little bit of how you met Sama and how all of that? Yes. One of my first interactions with Sama, we were in the midst of summer in the first year that I was working there. I was a server it was really, it was like a really hot summer. You know how New York summers can get pretty humid. And I was just like, I had a long sleeve because at the time, this is going back quite some time. I Tattoos weren't just a, a common thing, you know, and the restaurant was trying to be upscale. And I kind of got, you know, hired regardless of me having those tattoos. But I remember Sarma saying like, it's really hot. Like you're wearing a long sleeve. I remember taking the you know, sleeve down and showing her, it's like, well, I got this. And she was like, oh, that's going to be okay. She was determined to like talk to Matthew and make sure that it was going to be okay that I can have these tattoos. That was one of my first kind of interactions with her, my first memories of, you know, relating and, and, and just communicating with Sarma. And was that at the very start where the restaurant, you were already working there and then you were introduced to her? Or how did you actually get the job as... Uh, you know, running the the beverage side. You know, when I first came on to Pure Food and Wine, it was it was I was looking for something that was more conducive with my lifestyle. You know, I felt like I was leaning towards more organic. I was doing more cleanses. You know, the '90s were me were extremely toxic, and going into Pure Food and Wine was something that I I felt was more in alignment with my lifestyle. So I was drawn to the restaurant and. I was trying to get in and I went through several layers of interviews and I was pretty persistent on getting the job. They didn't really hire me off the spot. So I kind of got in on a ground level at the restaurant. It was like part time and I just was like working my way through and went from like waiter to bartender to beverage director. I, I basically worked my way through uh, higher ranks, so to speak getting into the position that I that I last was at the restaurant for many, many years. You earned your stripes. Yes. So you learn every aspect of the business and you've earned your stripes and you, you got to that position through merit, it sounds like to me, which is awesome. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I saw Sarma through the relationship with Matthew. There was a kind of like a disturbing time at the restaurant. You know, there were kind of camps, you know, people were in the the Sarma camp and people were at the Matthew camp and Matthew was moving on to a different restaurant. And I was um, asked 
to get pulled into that other restaurant, but I just felt more pulled towards Sarma. And I felt like, you know, she was kind of rooting for me and my tattoos. So I was like, you know, we're going to, he had the bigger like reputation as a restaurateur. And, you know, she didn't really have her name there, but, you know, Jeffrey was willing to back her. There was kind of like a nice group of people at the restaurant that really felt connected to her and really wanted to support her vision. And we were on the Sarma camp. For those listeners, if you haven't watched the docuseries, I'd say go and watch it. Interestingly for me, the fact that Jeffrey, the investor, decided to back Sarma, I mean, that was very unusual, actually, the decision, given the patriarchy and everything else. I thought he had probably come down on the side of Matthew. Was that a surprise to people, given that Matthew was the name, he was the guy, and Sarma was sort of the unknown? On one hand, yes, but also Matthew did have a track record of not having a good financial sense of operating restaurants. I think Jeffrey tapped into that in the documentary. He just said, like, you know, Matthew was notoriously known for lavishly spending money and not really, like, having great vision, but not having a good longevity of restaurants. They had great vision together, and they both presented the the concept to Jeffrey. Uh, He was embraced it. He liked just trying new restaurants. He was pretty, like, notorious for just opening up wild concepts in in New York City. Some of them would fail tremendously and some of them would would succeed. Our first four years were a struggle. I'll be honest with you. I mean, we we came on the scene with Matthew's notoriety and just like, you know, plant-based and and like raw food. Like it got on the map, but it wasn't necessarily really embraced until our fourth year. So like we were kind of bootstrapping for you know, the first four years, you know, the team was hardly making any money. I know Sarma was just hardly like getting enough money to to pay the bills and keep things going. It just attracted different chefs that came in and that were creative. And, you know, they started really tapping in, pushing the envelope and the wine list started, you know, developing. It was more of a collective team effort to get the momentum and not to mention more and more people were into plant-based gluten-free started to come more primarily like more and more people were eating gluten-free our entire menu was gluten-free so it was just you know people with celiac or people that were looking into gluten-free options they were just like in a haven we had this enchanting garden you know so our spring and summer regardless we're always like notoriously packed. But as the momentum started to happen and we started to basically gain a reputation and our tasting menu and you know the, the longevity of the crew just adamantly working there, we had like a core group of people that really pushed forward to really believe in the restaurant until we got to that point where we were really starting to like pick up momentum. It took a while. Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? 
Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Yeah, I mean, new startups are tough anyway, aren't they? They're, they're really hard when you're trying something new, but it was in a downturn. And it sounds like you all really pulled together. And, and that can obviously bring you closer together as well when you're all bootstrapping and you've all got a common cause. And by the way, the Abbot Kinney restaurant, Plant Food and Wine, is that Matthew's restaurant that's in Abbot Kinney in Venice? Yes, that is. Yeah, that's Matthew. He oh. went to open that after Pure Food and Wine. He opened that when Pure Food and Wine was still in existence. He went to uh, California to basically conquer that coast. And he had lucky enough to connect with um, a plant-based prince, like a literal prince. And he's really into veganism. So Matthew, the alliance, the backing of, of the prince with like finances that are just like inexhaustible from my understanding um, – They've they've opened up several concepts, and yeah, plant food and wine is definitely one of the first ventures that Matthew has planted in on the West Coast. Amazing! It just rang bells. Actually, I've been there many times. But when you mentioned the Enchanting Garden, because it's got a very nice outdoor garden area as well, it just popped into my head. And obviously, the name of the restaurant's quite similar. But we digress. I mean, it is. Part of the story, in a way, he goes off and he does other things. But the fact that Salma is backed and supported because of her head for finance and business, she obviously came from investment banking as well. That's a very important part of the story, actually. Yeah. And something that, that people should really think about. She was backed because of that. And of course, the sad thing, really, and I, I don't want to jump ahead because I want to sort of take it step by step, but that it's almost by her own hand. The thing that she creates and loves the most is the thing that by her own hand she destroys as a legacy and and financially destroys it. Um, and I'll say by proxy, because I really feel that there's a by proxy element here. And when we first talked, you know, the question, well, what would be her motivation to destroy the thing that she spent so long with all of you investing in energy-wise, time-wise, money-wise, everything else of investing to make the restaurant a success? Because it was a real success, wasn't it? After you bootstrapped, I mean, it was a really popping place in New York. It really and was. And I've heard people I know talk about it and say how amazing it was. Yeah, it was the Mecca. We got to the point where, you know, celebrities and people from all around the world, you know, world people that like really were into the vegan diet people that weren't remotely into the vegan diet you know she was notoriously almost ridiculed or like people weren't happy about her saying oh you know come in in the winter time and hang your hang your mink coat in our closet and come in and sit down and enjoy this incredible meal but you know in one hand it was genius because it really opened the door to more people experiencing the restaurant than just like looking for just placating to the vegan community. You know, the vegan community came in regardless because it was like an incredible vegan menu. But I mean, we had the attraction, like the desserts were notorious, like the ambiance, the wine list, the cocktails, you know, you didn't have to like just be a vegan to come in. And if you love flavor and and you love, you know, the ambiance and you enjoyed like organic biodynamic wines, you were in good hands. You know, the place was really, it made itself known like globally. We had people from all over the world. They were super excited because they heard about this restaurant and they were ready to have this like 
raw food, fine dine experience. And really being the first of its kind. And I, I think that's another important part to this story. Sama and all of you had made it such a success, but what she symbolized probably to some, was being very idealistic. And we know the media and others love to tear down those people who seem to be, you know, selling the idea of idealism and being virtuous and living life in the right way. And and I will just say that also probably what played in was the fact that she's model-esque and still is model-esque. I mean, strikingly good-looking and seemingly has a personality to boot, You know, I heard you and others just talk about her still very fondly. And I think that's another important part that although I think she might, and I was going to ask you just to characterise Sama, because my view from watching a documentary, of course, I haven't met her and I don't know Sama, but I felt that there was a mix of introversion as well, of being an introvert. And, you know, again, people expect someone who looks like Sama and someone who's successful and is doing something very different to be exuberant and outgoing and an extrovert. But actually, I see somebody who might be quite introverted, really, and, and it's not a great fit for when you have to be socialising and being the face of something. That can feel a bit uncomfortable at times if you're used to keeping yourself to yourself, keeping your life private, and there you are on this national, maybe international platform, but celebrities and people very interested in you. Yeah, she was very shy, you know, really what it boiled down to. You know, there were people that wanted to, you know, meet her and people that wanted the the books like that they bought autographed by her. And, you know, she always felt extremely awkward in those situations. She didn't really know how to just play into that. She wasn't really a good ambassador, so to speak, of just like charming and schmoozing and just like lapping it up with like guests. She wasn't really that kind of like, that's not how she operated. She was more inward, more quiet. She would sit at the corner of the bar with me and she'd be on her laptop and Bonnie would do like imitations of her, how she would have her shoulder like over and she'd look over to you. She'd like turn and look at you. And and it was kind of cute when Bonnie would do those imitations of Sarma. She was just kind of like, sweet and quiet and didn't really like open herself up to her relationships. But you know that there was um, there was definitely something going on with her and Matthew that didn't seem like healthy. And that again, that seems to be a, pa- a pattern. She had like what seemingly was an incredible relationship with uh, a younger man. His name was Toby. That was the relationship that she got in right before she met uh, Mr. Fox. And I don't know how that relationship ended up. I know that they broke up. I don't know if Sarma broke up with him because of the age gap or he broke up with her. But I know that, you know, it was a heartache. That was the period where she was kind of going into a lot of pain. And and that's when she, you know, got Leon. And, and, and that was right before Mr. Fox came into the scene, so to speak. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting timeline, actually, Joey. You know, being heartbroken and and being vulnerable, that is painful. And I think that that probably isn't really thought about as much as it should be in that her vulnerability was there. He comes on the scene and unfortunately timing is everything, isn't it? When she's probably feeling vulnerable and looking for a partner again, you know, it's a lonely place. I mean, I've been a CEO of, of a charity and I will say that when you're doing these things, it's quite a lonely place. 
And if you're an introvert, um, I have introverted qualities as well. I really like my own time. People think I'm a big character and I am when I'm doing something, but then I like to be very much in my own cave, you know, and have my own thoughts and be able to process things and being a reflector. Um, I like to take time and therefore even that, um, the fact that she was carrying the pressure of a restaurant, you know, it's a big responsibility. And when you've got other people's livelihoods as well, it is a big responsibility when you're doing something different. And that loneliness, you know, I always say when you're looking for love, you are vulnerable because you tend to share more information than you would do normally. Um, sometimes when you see things about someone, you might quieten the mind or, you know, this kind of instinct when things don't feel quite right, you rationalize things and you give someone another chance and another chance, particularly if you're attending to things yourself. And I, I don't know whether that was going on, by the way, but I just get a sense that the time when he comes into her life, and I don't even know who contacted who on Twitter, but I remember from the docu-series, there was a mention of Alec Baldwin and there being some banter back and forth between, I think he was known as Shane Fox, wasn't he, online? And therefore, Sama just assumed they knew each other, which again, by association, it gives you a frame of reference. You feel that, you know, someone's known, whereas online, it could be anybody. And just because you interact with someone, it doesn't mean you know them well. But that could have all played in. And I don't know whether he contacted her, whether he slid into her DMs or whether she messaged him. Do, do you know at all? Or I don't. I mean, Sarma was very private in her life. So I don't know who approached who, but I kind of got that kind of information from the documentary more than I actually knew from, from Sarma herself. She was even quieter. We were all kind of in shock about them being married. It was like, what? You know, that was like, that was something that they did and they just went off and, and she was like really even quiet about that. Like afterwards, I'm like, oh, you got married. And she's like, yeah, you know, it wasn't like a celebration. It was, it just kind of felt like, I don't know, the motive didn't feel like it was coming from a place of like connection and love, you know, like when you see people that are married with, with enthusiasm, like I am to my wife, you know, if I, if you tell me I, about, you know, did I get married? I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm like super excited <laughs> to, my God, Lisa's the most incredible person. I love her, you know? And, you know, you didn't really see that dynamic between them two. And again, Sarma was like kind of more quiet and private about her personal life, even to begin with. And I think that is one big thing that I walked away from the documentary is that, you know, everyone I think needs to have someone in their life that they can be really open with and just share yourself and be intimate. And I feel like I need a community of people like that personally. I have, you know, a lot of people that I'm really close to that I, I trust and that know me and that I can just communicate what's going on in my head. So this way they can like kind of shake me out of like my mind going in the wrong direction. And if I'm investing too much in the wrong direction, you know, I'm liable to make really foolish decisions. And, and I can make foolish decisions even with this community, but I think it's more of a preventative, like with the community, I have more accountability and I have like, I, I feel like I make more intuitive decisions as a result of that. I agree. It, it gives you a different frame of reference and perspective and we all need to be connected. I mean, as human beings, we do. So I think that's interesting. You said that you learned much more 
because she was such a private person, well, being very private and being isolated or slightly remote means that when you come into contact with a narcissist or potentially a psychopath, they exploit all of that. They exploit the fact that you haven't got these anchors around you and that actually can make you a a primary target. And I, I suspect, and I'm sharing you with this now, not knowing, but I suspect that he was the one that contacted her probably saw her profile and probably initiated contact. But I don't know that for sure. But what I do know of narcissists and psychopaths, they normally select their mark and their mark being their target. And when they want to invest, they will. the setup will happen on day one of contact. They will already have a plan in their minds and they will be testing boundaries and they'll be looking to see whether you're compliant, uh, whether you're malleable, whether you can be moved. They'll be testing the emotional water and energy and the boundaries and they'll be looking for the emotional temperature of the person now psychopaths and narcissists are very good at the read you know they read people very well of things that you then feel seen because they are that they can be that good that they look like that they're operating on a higher level because they intuit things but they're actually just very good at watching and manipulating and tapping into that you know, what I've seen of him, I'm kind of talking about some of the things that I understand of someone like him, not having assessed him, spoken with him. But what I do understand, and I mentioned this to you before, Joey, is that things go wrong for her when he enters into her timeline. And that, for me, I can't ignore that. The first question I always ask a victim, and I will say it just outright, I do believe she's a victim of coercive control. I had no doubt watching the docuseries, although I was always looking for things that said... There are more questions to be asked. You know, you don't know the full story, but the way I feel she was framed, and there's very much a question mark about, well, is she still in contact with him? Is Was she complicit in some parts? And just the whole way the media framed her, I felt very uncomfortable with. I do, I guess, want to just lay a marker down that this is before the Me Too movement with Sama's case as well. So the media... It is. Yeah, so I think that probably plays in as well, the the way that she was framed as a vegan femme fatale and the pizza-eating vegan and the Bernie Madoff of vegans, all of this nonsense, which is really unhelpful. You know, it's just like clickbait, you know, and they're just always looking for an angle and they're always looking for... Like they focus on like, you know, I, one of my quotes from the documentary is, forget about the pizza. Like what happened to the money? You know, that was one of my quotes from the documentary. It's funny when I heard myself saying that back in the trailer, I I was kind of blown away. I was like, I said that I, that was kind of really funny, but yeah, it's, it's really interesting how they really, they targeted her and didn't even put their focus on him and they didn't really do any investigation about like, who is this character that they're targeting? Yes, she's high profile, yes. But she was never really like, really like a lot of people can testify to Sarma. She was like a great person. She was an amazing boss. She didn't have the longevity of like employees five, six years on the average of working in that establishment because she was like the birdie Madoff. You know, she did that. And it's not because we were there because it was all about the glitz and glam. And because, you know, we took a long time to get to that place. We were there because, you know, we didn't like this like tyrannical boss. We didn't, she just like entrusted us to, to look after her place. And we all just like, you know, worked together. And it was like a great community. We loved the music, the environment, the food. 
everything there working there, you know, she was a great boss. You know, she, we would hear stories about her taking care of dishwashers that maybe got sick and they needed some money. And she would like, you know, take care of Remember, my buddy Grant needed some money and she would like cover that. You know, she was a compassionate, kind person for many years, you know, and we're all full of flaws, you know, like I'm full of flaws, you know, but that's why it was so confusing when everything was happening basically when he was basically had her his grips on her and you know she was getting more and more away from the restaurant and you know we weren't getting paid and we weren't hearing from her we all felt hurt and wounded there were many victims in this whole circumstance you know we we all trusted her we she built that trust and you know we were there so it was just like almost can you imagine if you're in a relationship for many years with someone and then you know they start treating you different and you know you have all these years of like in your mind bank to just like oh but she'll come around you know like everyone felt like she was going to come around and to the extent of the damage that no one had a clue and i don't even think that honestly like listening to sarma in in documentaries i really want her to get the support that she needs to heal to move forward because i i don't even think she's fully process the the entire situation. I, I'm not sure if she's even portrayed greatly in the documentary. I think she was in shock. We were connecting about this. I think she was still in shock when this was being recorded. I, I don't think she's mourned and, and is grieved and has like understood the remorse of the choices that she made and, and the consequences and the trickle effect and how it affected everyone around her and everyone who cared for her. And, and including her. It's a tragic, tragic story. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You said so many really important things there, Jerry. So astute, actually. I mean, the first thing about the personality change of him changing who and what she is, that to me is one of the critical indicators of coercive control, when she changes who and what she is. And you have to look at what are the influences and are those changes in her interest? And if they're not in her interest, whose interests are they in? So these are the things I looked to as a behavioral analyst and profiler. And what I could see was that none of the changes were in her interests. They didn't benefit her. They didn't benefit you at the restaurant, which was her legacy. You know, I'm a legacy person. And when you, and I know you are, what you've created, what you've gone on to create with Jerry's Hot Sauce, when, when you're sowing a legacy, everything in, about your energy is in that direction. So why would she undermine that? Why would she give someone else money? That's not in her own interest to do that. The fact that you say that she was compassionate, and I love the way you described all those things when the cameras aren't on, of what's going on behind the scenes, is compassion to other human beings, of helping people in need. That's who she was and who she is. Somehow she lost sight of all of that, and the, the media have framed her as somebody very different. 
But her compassion tells me that she has empathy, a great deal of empathy for people. And when you're an empath, well, that can be a great thing if you've got good people around you who love you, support you, care for you. But when you come into the line of sight of a narcissist or a psychopath, it's disastrous because they will literally suck you dry of everything you have. And I mean that in a physical sense, I mean that in a soul sense, and I mean that in a financial sense, they will drain your reserves, everything that you have, and your energy where you may have been vibrating at such a high level. Everything about your success is what attracts them. And then gradually you just see the person being psychologically undone and reduced and left spent on the floor. And everyone wonders how that happened, particularly if it's a very successful person. And so just the way that you characterized her, you know, no one's perfect, but, but that's what I saw in terms of what was going on, even down to why the hell was he recording her at her lowest point crying and needing help and assistance that the you and I would be comforting the person because they're distressed and distraught and upset, but he's filming her almost as if he's preparing evidence for, I told you she was crazy. Look, this is who she is, crying and acting in a crazy way. Those kinds of behaviours, I mean, why someone would do that, mm -hmm. there's nothing good about that type of behaviour. And therefore, everything about him was about extracting from her. And it does look like she had the freedom of choice, i.e. she's sending money to him. But did she? Or what was the goal? What was the motive for her? Maybe he had promised certain things and we know that he was telling her that these were tests. But yeah. who the fuck does that? I mean, excuse me swearing, but it's like, who sets a test for your loved one? And you're in a very happy relationship and congratulations and, you know, you love your wife. Why would you be trying to make her less than and extract money and time and setting tests for her. I mean, who do you think you are when you're doing that? It, it's such an arrogance, isn't it, to set someone, the person you're meant to care for and love, tests and then punish them and give them rewards if they, you know, and that punishment and reward system, again, is indicative of coercive control. It, it's certainly not healthy. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've had some similar discussions with people and they're saying like, oh, you know, she was in on it. And I'm like, what motivation does she have to basically destroy everything she ever worked for? Like, what is that? Like, I'm beside myself to the extent that he was able to just the amount of money and, and just the amount of time and just it's heartbreaking to watch that, you know, it's, it's mind bending to witness that in the documentary and, and to know, you know, the person that you knew and to see everything that she worked and believed in. And then when she like raised the money and she had that awareness, oh, I shouldn't have control of the finances because like this might happen again. She had that awareness and yet he was still able to like, control her to not like have anybody else be accountable when she had to move money around because it could have been easily set up at that stage to have someone just step in and be like she can't make any decisions financially unless someone else is there to hold it accountable like that could have been set up and it could have she still could have had the restaurant in her life and perhaps everything could have been okay and she could have rectified the past to some extent but he still had his grips on her, believing into this like insanity of endless amounts of like financial, you know, support and 
expansion of the brand and everything that she ever wanted. He knew all the vision of what she wanted that restaurant to be to have and her having the control of the restaurant's expansion without having the claws of any other people that investors sometimes do. They get their claws and they water down brands. So she didn't want that to happen. She was, she was extremely protective of her brand to the extent that she invested more into the fantasy of him just turning on that floodgate of finances and just destroyed everything she worked tooth and nail to get to where she was. It's crazy. I mean, that's difficult for people to understand, isn't it? It really is, yeah. But she was in it, and she was in it. She couldn't see the wood through the trees, which is classic, actually, when you have gaslighting. And you mentioned about her interview in the docu-series, and I wasn't sure when your interview was. Was yours a few years ago? Yeah, it was three years ago in my interview. When the restaurant closed, I moved to L.A., And I actually worked with Matthew for a short period of time, and that didn't work out. And then I was working over at Scopa Italian Roots, uh, Chef Antonio LaFalso's restaurant. I know it very well. Oh, great. I was working there for quite some time before the dawning of Joey's Hot Sauce came into fruition, which really started out with me wanting to give something for my wife. I didn't even start out trying to start up any kind of brand. I was literally, Lisa was literally just saying, oh, why did they got to put binders and sugar and everything? And so it came out of complete love for her and everything I've learned throughout the restaurant industry. You know, pure food and wine is definitely a big foundation of just, you know, using apple cider vinegar and Himalayan salt and organic ingredients, you know, that foundation along with, as well as with my mom's intuitive Southern Italian cooking, you know, came into, that's how the, the bottle came to be, so to speak. But it's really, you know, amazing. Well, just while you think of that, loving hot sauce as I do, I'm going to put the link in my show notes to your sauce as well so that oh, my listeners can... That can tap into it. But I love the fact that it was it was made through love. And that's really how the best things get created. And, you know, from a passion, from a love or from a, a need to create something that doesn't already exist. And you were obviously drawing on all your learning from working with Sama as well. You know, some of the things that you said about you would love Sama to be able to have trauma-informed, well, I'm going to say trauma-informed, you know, therapy and help from somebody who understands trauma, but also coercive control, I think is really important to help with her healing. And the fact you still hold space for her counts massively. I was talking about, interested to know when your interview was, but also her interview, because what struck me about her interview is I felt watching it that hers was probably very soon after it had happened. And when I did my due diligence and research, I did discover that it was after she had come out of prison that Chris had decided he'd been to the restaurant and he spoke with her and ended up talking to her for eight hours with Mark, one of the producers, and they sat there. And that's the interview that we see. What's clear to me is that she doesn't have the language for what happened. She doesn't have the answers for what happened. And unfortunately, that doesn't make her look good. You know, to other people who don't get this stuff, you feel that she's withholding. Or how can she not know the answer to this? But I can see her thinking, oh, that happened? Or did that happen? You know, almost as if she's hearing it for the first time, which is classic when you've been gaslit and when so much has gone on, you can't recall certain things. But also, she didn't have the language 
to describe it. And it's very similar to what Deborah Newell first said to me, who was targeted by John Meehan, and it was her case was popularised by a male journalist, Chris Goffard, who created Dirty John, the podcast. And Deborah had no words for what had happened because it had only just happened. It was only when she heard me talking about coercive control, she suddenly started to realise all those behaviours well, what happened to her? And it wasn't her fault. And then she reached out to me and just said, wow, you seem like you know me. I know you don't know me, but you've just talked about all these things and it's really validated my experience. It's really made me understand, actually, it's not about me, it's about what he did. And I just feel with Sama's interview, it's very similar to what I've seen from many women, in particular, who've been victimised. They don't have the language, they don't have the answers. And unfortunately, if if their story is told through a male lens which this one has been, you miss the nuanced detail, plus the fact coercive control wasn't even name-checked. Well, I can't tell you how many hundreds and hundreds of people have messaged me. Have I seen the docu-series, Bad Vegan? Please help us understand it. No one's even talking about coercive control, Laura. Most people who contacted me were very positive and warm towards Sama and felt that she had been victimised and misrepresented in the docu-series, even though it's her own words... But if you don't have the language and if your world is turned upside down and you don't know which way is up, it's very difficult to articulate what's gone on. And I feel that it's a disservice, actually, to her. I feel very empathetic towards her. I mean, a lot of people, like, go to the extent of thinking, oh, yeah, she had planned all this. I'm like, come on, you know. (laughs) Why? That's really down a rabbit hole, like... You think she recorded all this because so she can get this in a documentary so she could sell it? She could destroy everything she's ever built in her entire life to maybe perhaps write a book. And like she wasn't thinking, you know, 3D chess. Like maybe she's trying to basically share her story and heal through her story. And, and perhaps it can be of service to somebody. And maybe there could be some monetary success that comes out of it. I mean, the woman's life was destroyed, completely derailed. Everything that she built up for, you know, she was in debt when she first started, but she was moving towards just recovering from that. And the possibility, Pure Food and Wine's potential was just, she had the world at her feet. I was just talking to Walter. They had people lined up to be able to, you know, have wine with Pure Food and Wine with Sarma's face on that. And that could have been a national thing. And there was just a lot of money waiting in the wings for her. The world was her oyster. She could have really capitalized on being able to put juice up bars in so many different places because, you know, the style of Pure Food and Wine wasn't really like granola e. It wasn't, it was accessible and it was executed in a way that was, you know, flavorful for everybody, you know, and that's what made it appealing. It wasn't like this, you had to be a, a vegetarian to enjoy it. You just had to just be a person to be able to enjoy it. You know, we had so many people coming through. And I remember when we prepared the granola for the Dalai Lama, when when Ann Curry came through and she's like, the Dalai Lama's coming through and let's get a granola. He doesn't want the raisins. So I had it made without the raisins. And, you know, and the Dalai Lama thoroughly enjoyed our, our granola. You know, like it was for anybody and everybody. You know, it wasn't a restaurant. It, it had so much potential. And she just destroyed everything that she had built. And I don't think if there's not, I don't entertain one second that she did that with any kind of intention to like perhaps sell a movie. 
I'm sorry. You're never going to convince me of that. I'm sorry. No, and I certainly won't try and convince you because I, <laughs> I don't believe that someone would blow up their legacy like that. I hope that she does start to heal. And, you know, what I didn't see in the interview was any real remorse or responsibility taking, which, which told me she was still in it. Yeah. Um, whether that's changed now, and I think that's probably important for all of the staff, because like you said, so many people's lives were affected for an empath not to show that, or maybe she said it and it didn't make it into the docu-series, but it tells me her world was still upside down. And I would love to be able to help her in some way, even if she listens to the episode, um, but certainly talk to her about coercive control or even send her some things about coercive control. And hopefully she will come through helping other people mm-hmm. as well. And I've I'd just been that. with Deborah Newell and she said that's her her main aim is to help other other women in particular, because it is a very lonely place when it happens to you. Yeah, that would be so great if she can get what she needs, you know. I'd love that be the outcome of this, that, you know, she can get on the other side of this and, and be of service and really have people truly understand the situation and, you know, reconnect with people that did care for her. And, you know, we can all heal as a result of that as opposed to, you know, all of us walking around with these wounds, you know, we're all, we all have these wounds. I hold a place of compassion for her. I've been in my life in a place I've struggled with addiction for many years. And the nineties, like I said, the nineties were a very difficult time for me and my family. And I continued to heal through that entire process. And, And I feel that that puts me in a position to understand and have more compassion towards her and, and I do have compassion even for people that just have nothing but anger towards her because people had anger towards me and I get it. I completely understand it. So maybe we can all heal through this. I, I hope that she gets what she needs to get her to where she needs to be. Me too. And thank you for sharing that. And of course, there's one person that's still out there and could well be doing this to other women, which is one of my huge concerns. Yeah. And I know we haven't got much time, but it would be wrong not to talk about the person who caused all of this, who mm-hmm. has really not had much accountability. But I'd, I would like you just to describe just some of the things, having met him um, and some of the things you mentioned about how he held that meeting, if you could just say a little bit about, you know, your interaction with him and how he came across to you and what he understood about you. Anthony was really like Shane. That's how I got introduced to him, was really observant. And like you said, really just waiting in the wings. And, you know, he would park up on the bar with me and just have conversations. And you could tell he was acutely listening and how long I'd been there. And he saw that my commitment to the restaurant. He, he saw how long I'd been there, how dedicated I was to that place. And, you know, when he talked about that, oh, we are going to be expanding and he's going to make sure that I get, you know, the equity and, and stake in the game because I've been there for so long and dedicated. He knew that that would light me up, you know, that would light up any employee that had been there, you know, for any length of time, you know, and, he knew how to say the things he knew that you, everyone would have, would have wanted to hear. And then using those things, because when the paychecks weren't coming around, he was basically giving a song and dance about, oh, we're just trying to create that there's a disturbance in the restaurants. So this way, when we buy it off of Jeffrey, you know, we can essentially buy it for a better price because if it, if it looks like it's doing too well, we won't be able to buy it from him. And, you know, using people and leveraging people. And, and then, you know, that came to it 
you know, a whole, people were just like, we can't not get paid anymore. And, you know, then we finally did get paid. And, and then he had that meeting and we expected Sarman to be at that meeting. And he rolled into that meeting and that's just the tone. I'm, I'm so glad that, that, that there was a recording. I remember when that meeting happened and, and we were all just like, you know, we walked out of there more confused. Like, where's Sarma? Why is he here? And he's taking over. Are we going to be okay now? And But I knew one thing for sure, that if there was any interruption in the paychecks, that no one was willing to kind of endure a moment more because we had endured, you know, a month's worth of, of back pay. And then there was that day that came when the when the paycheck didn't come through and we had, you know, reservations up to Yazoo in the books, but no one was willing. Like we all said, Hey, Sarma, I'm like, Sarma, if you're not going to be here, you're going to lose everything. They're all going to walk out. I emailed and texted her and called nothing, you know, and then she sent like a collective email to everyone about some, what all of us felt is was BS about like the transfers of banks and like everything's going to be okay. Just hang in there. And nobody was really willing to hang in there. We don't even know if that came from her or if it came from Shane, AKA Anthony, but that was pretty much, you know, the day that the walkout, everyone just walked out and there was people really upset about the restaurant and everyone was just really upset. They, everyone felt betrayed by her and felt betrayed and they were pretty angry. And I get it, rightfully so. And that really, to me, jumped out in the docuseries. I remember writing down, what the hell? This guy who has no background in the restaurant business is now inserting himself in the business, calling a meeting without Sama with the staff, and now he's causing maximum chaos with everybody. And the chaos and the confusion and the gaslighting, but the reassurance messages, which is in direct conflict with everything he's saying. Be reassured, but actually we're doing all of the, these massive changes, but it will all be okay. All of these things, but he's got no background in the restaurant business at all. That, again, major red flags. And the fact, I think it was you that said, you know, we came away very uneasy and your instincts were absolutely right. But that's what a narcissist and psychopath does. They cause mass chaos and destruction in such a short time that leaves you wondering which way is up. And maybe he is plausible in what he's saying. And you could think, oh, well, maybe that's what they are trying to do. And there's always a part of you think that, that they might actually believe that, and that might actually happen. Mm-hmm. But your gut is telling you something else, which yeah. you all followed your gut. And that's what he's traded on. That's been his tradecraft across his life, from what I can see, having walked out on his child, having walked out on his first wife, callous disregard, no loyalty to them, spending all this money at a casino that's not even his money, and being so callous in that, with no emotional attachment to anything or anyone, which again just points me down the road much more to psychopathy. Um, And of course, let's not forget he has a criminal history too, Mm -hmm. but there he is selling himself as something very different that probably most members of staff could see how convincing he may have been to Sama in terms of how quickly he inserted himself and separated her from everybody and tried to do the same with her family and and with all of you. And unfortunately, he was effective in that, in terms of what he did. But I don't don't think there was any strategic long-term plan. I don't think it was all thought through that they would end up in Tennessee in this 
hotel. I mean, again, that points me much more to psychopathy, that he's a great tactician. He can do in the moment, but not strategy. What's the long-term plan? I don't know what you think. And I know we've got to wrap because of time, but I'm just curious to know your thoughts, Joey. Yeah, I don't think he had a long-term plan. I, you know, we discussed, I feel like there is a level of like addiction. The casino and gambling is, you know, plays into his narcissism and um, psychopathic behavior. I think coupled that and fueled with just, you know, his thirst for being at the casinos, like just playing multiple slot machines and, and crap, like he's playing everything at the same time. He's looking for that rush, you know, and just wasting that money months on end at the casino and having Sarma just like in misery, just by herself. Um, it's just tragic, you know, I go back to saying it's just wretched, just insane to see and hear the story. It, you know, I really hope there's another chapter in Sarma's life that could um, bring value. You know, I know in my life, there has, you know, all that pain that I created and the pain that I've had it has a value for people. I, I can help people that struggle with addiction because of what I've been through. And, and I feel like Sarma can have that, you know, she needs to walk through the fire to heal. And uh, I really hope that she gets what she needs so she can be a beacon of light and hopefully prevent people from walking down this path and giving themselves to a narcissistic animal like Anthony. Definitely. Well said. And I, and I think, by the way, you talking about your addiction, which, you know, thank you for sharing that because lots of people do suffer from addictions, but your compassion and your empathy, I would probably say are very different in terms of your capacity than Anthony or um, Shane Fox, which again, he goes by multiple names, but I would imagine his is much more about the adrenaline rush. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, much more fun gambling with somebody else's money, not your own. And whilst you're all working hard, making this money, he's there just frivolously spending it all. But I, I doubt that he has the compassion and the empathy that, that you have shared, because actually the traits of psychopathy is that there is no empathy. And I would imagine for Sama, you talked about wretched, you know, feeling wretched at her worst low point, I would imagine in some strange way, the police going there to arrest her probably rescued her. And it's a real conflict, isn't it, of two things, that the police go to arrest her at probably the worst time in her life and put her in jail. But I wonder if in some way they saved her. Um, who knows where else it could have gone to, but I wonder whether she did feel relieved, some form of relief because it sounds to me just the way her body was, you know, she was malnourished. She, you know, the detective seemingly treated her as a victim at that point. And then somehow that dropped off. So I too hope that she um, comes out the other side of this stronger and wanting to help other people. And I know you feel that way, Joey, which is why you've given me so much of your time and I really appreciate it. So I just want to say thank you very much for shedding light on, on what was really going on behind the scenes. Yeah, you shed a lot of light. I really appreciate connecting with you around this because like your understanding of the situation, it's healing for me to connect with you around what has happened. Because like, you know, in this wild life and we're in this wild journey in life and you know, there's people that hold light to help people just have more insight and to bring calmness, to bring healing, to bring, to bring us through the, these turmoils. And, and, you know, connecting with you helps me really just like 
invest into the part of me that has more empathy towards Sarma and has me like just move through life in, in a better way, orients me, it points me towards my North Star, so to speak. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And, and that's why I do what I do. And, you know, it's why I do crime analysts, because our conversation, someone will be listening to it and it will help them. And so, you know, we pass it on and we pay it forward. And we don't always know someone's battles and their struggles. And I've spent, you know, my life work trying to serve people and help people. And I hope my always my aim is that I shed light and we move to a better place and space. Um, that's always the ambition. So please pass on my best to Sama and I'm more than happy to talk with her. And of course, you know, we can carry on talking as well, which I imagine our paths literally crossed because, you know, I've been to both restaurants and lived in Venice and it's it's a small world really at, at the end of the day. So I'm glad we've connected now anyway. Yeah, so am I. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I'm jumping in here to wrap this conversation But what I will say is Joey is just amazing, isn't he? What incredible depth of empathy and compassion. And he really places things in context. And like I said, it's important for me that he's independent, i.e. he has no skin in the game. He's just saying what he saw and what he understood of what was happening and for knowing Sama for so long. He really helped confirm things for me, the things that I was already thinking, plus holding up that independent lens to help me further understand Strangis. So join me back in The Intelligent Self for part two. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.